What's up? And welcome to Clarity for Parents of Athletes, bringing you stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised. My name is Gabe Nocere from aclearmind.com. All right, and welcome to episode number 51. Now, before I get to the guest for this episode, I want to thank you, as always, for listening. I know it's been a while since I released an episode, and that's for good reason. I have been working on a brand new program for youth athletes 13 years and older called the Player Empowerment Program. It's an amazing program. If you join our Facebook group, the Clarity for Parents of Athletes Facebook group, you can receive a special discount, uh, limited time discount for the program and find out a little bit more information on that. So again, just go to Facebook and search for the group Clarity for Parents of Athletes. Now, the very special guest for this episode is Trent Demas, who is a member of the 1992 USA Gymnastics Olympic team and actually won the gold medal in the high bar in that competition He is also from Albuquerque, an amazing individual, of course, an amazing athlete, and the story that he tells leading up to his gold medal performance is absolutely amazing. I literally was on the edge of my seat listening to this story, just the detail that went into it and what he had to go through psychologically right before that performance And it's an incredible performance. And again, that's actually something I also posted on our Facebook group. You can see his gold medal performance on our Facebook group for Clarity for Parents of Athletes. But just the story is incredible, so I'm excited for you to listen to it. And additionally, the advice that he has for parents who are raising athletes, and he's one himself, is just absolutely amazing as well. So I hope you enjoy it. I know you will. And as usual, I'm going to leave you with a few takeaways at the end of the interview. So just stay tuned after Trent and I sign off just for a couple more minutes and I tie together the things that were most impactful for me during this interview. All right, enjoy. All right, Trent, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. We're recording this during this experience we're all having with coronavirus. How have the last six or seven months gone for you? Uh, Gabe, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate uh, you thinking about uh, the serious issues that uh, you're tackling here. Um, but uh, So I, I appreciate being on the show this morning. It's the last six months. Uh, I think they've been like everyone else's. I think it's been difficult. I think it's uh, interesting to look out into the world and say, wow, we have uh, um, we have some real issues to deal with. And so I hope uh, uh, globally we can figure that out. Nationally, we can come to some civility. And I think uh, personally, um, my life hasn't changed too dramatically uh, for my family, myself and my family. Um, Colorado, where I'm currently living is uh, people are out uh, and it's really, it's not back to where it was, but currently I think it's pretty close to business as usual. Kids are going to school, um, games are happening, people are engaged in sports and, and so that's good to see. 
That's good. Well, I, I definitely want to get into your role as a parent of athletes, but I want to go way back into your experience as your own athlete. So where did you grow up and what was your family dynamic like? Well, I am an Albuquerque native, born and raised in Albuquerque, grew up in Los Duranes, uh, down off of Rio Grande and close to I-40. At that mm. time, it was a pretty rough neighborhood, but um, you know, we had a very strong family unit, I think is the best way to, to express that. Um, love Albuquerque. It is, New Mexico is, is such a special place. Uh, I think the culture, uh, certainly the food, the climate, it has always amazed me that that it is not one of the largest hubs of sporting events because it literally has the most perfect weather of any state in the U.S. Mm. And um, so, but uh, in terms of where I uh, started gymnastics, uh, Albuquerque was the place, and as you would uh, probably think Albuquerque is not a hotbed, or at least wasn't a hotbed for for gymnastics. Um, probably a lot of other things, but um, yeah, I started in. Let's see, gosh, that would be 1975, so quite some time ago, and I started gymnastics at Wells Park Community Center, which is uh, close to downtown, mm-hmm. and that's where that's where my career, if you can call it that, started off. Wow. So how did you get into gymnastics in the first place? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, my family uh, used to spend a lot of time, I grew up in a strong Christian family, and my father and mother would go to universities and talk to people about Christ. And, and what we ended up doing is our, our parents homeschooled us at home. We were probably some of the first kids in the nation to be homeschooled. As a matter of fact, our neighbors used to always call the police because they were like, these kids aren't <laughs> going to school. Now it's, now it's the norm for a lot of kids and yeah. certainly for a lot of athletes. But um, my parents wanted us not to be social invalids. So <laughs> they put us in a bunch <laughs> of different sports. We were in soccer. We did karate. We spoke. Uh, we took German lessons of all things, and gymnastics was one of those additional sports that uh, got kind of thrown into the mixing bowl to see what, what would percolate up. So that's how we just started gymnastics. It just was one of those, you know, four or five, four different sports that we started, or activities rather. Wow, that's cool. That's great. great uh, intro to it. Now, what kind of sports did your parents do in, in their athletic career? Uh, my mother did was not an athlete. She was completely normal, <laughs> and sorry about that. No was worries. completely normal. And uh, my <laughs> father was a boxer, so oh wow, uh, he was a Golden Gloves boxer. He we did track and fields, and uh, he was you know was quite fast. And you know we figured uh, we always had this joke because my mother did not want us to be in boxing because of its uh just kind of nature but mm-hmm. uh, it's good for it's good for a lot of people but for us she's like let's let's stick with some other types of sports so um but my dad was uh, he came from a very rough background uh, he was in gangs growing up um moved from arizona to new mexico to the south valley and uh 
I think uh, after his parents got divorced, their life changed very dramatically. So it was uh, the best they could do at the time. And uh, boxing was one of those sports that allowed him to, I think, express himself a little bit. And he was quite good at it. But I'm pretty thankful that we didn't go in that direction. Yeah. So, you know, boxing is obviously a very intense sport. And you, just like all sports, especially if you're going to be at a level of a gold gloves boxer, you have to put a lot of dedication and intensity into it. What was his role like when you were an athlete? My dad's role as when we were athletes was, was pretty amazing. He sat back, he encouraged us to the degree that he felt we needed to move forward, but he was never, I mean, he was, he was involved, but he wasn't involved in such a way that made it difficult for us to do what we needed to do. As an example, uh, no matter, he became a judge uh, just to learn uh, what we needed to do. And he did a little bit of judging, but he really didn't have the time for it. And, uh, but what was interesting about throughout my career and, or, and throughout my brother's career as well is he would always be at every competition. I mean, I would say very rarely did he ever miss a competition uh, unless he couldn't travel or something of that nature. But especially in the big competitions, he would follow us from event to event and take some notes, uh, etc. cetera. And uh, later on in my career, when, when we started to get televised, those kinds of things, uh, the uh, broadcasting companies would always get so upset. They're like, where's your father? Why isn't he sitting in his seat? We need to film him. And I said, Hey, that's, (laughs) that's my dad, but he never wanted that piece of it. He Hmm. wanted his interest was us. And, Hmm. uh, and then of course, after the multiplicity of failure, which was uh, probably the, the great summation of my career uh, after every single one, we would sit down and he would say, well, if you, if you didn't fall on this event and if you wouldn't have stepped here and maybe if you'd have done this and this and this, um, he said, you'd, this is the place that you would have been. So it was this constant uh, just reinforcement and a silent reinforcement of, hey, you can do this. And if we can just work on a few of these things um, or if you can work on a few of these things, uh, who knows what can happen? So it was really supportive. So it doesn't sound like it was pushy. It was more analytical and neutral. Well, I would say it's definitely neutral. Um, I don't know if analytical is it, but I think that, uh, but, but yes, I mean, he, he would show us that the pos- that the, that there was the possibility of being very good without saying, okay, you need to get in there and work. You've got to do this. There was never that type of a push. Um, and then from my mother's side, she literally was at, I would say probably 90% of all of our workouts drove us to every single workout. Uh, and then when we got to middle school age, we were training twice a day. So it was take in the morning, take them to school, pick them up from school, take them to gym. And so both of my parents were highly involved, but the stress of, watching us compete was too much for my mother. And so she ended up stepping back from watching competitions because it, it, it ended up affecting her health. 
even though mm. she never told us that it uh it took quite a toll on her wow but you had to have noticed that she wasn't there at your events what was that like for you uh i think that we started to notice some of the issues with her health and so uh, she ended up with the worry and the stress ended up creating some ulcers for uh, for her that mm. ended up bleeding to the point where she had so little blood that she was passing out and uh, mm. and uh, had to get that repaired and taken care of. So we understood as kids that perhaps that's not the best place for her. And mm. uh, she was always very supportive. Uh, would you know come to workouts and watch us? Uh, very quiet about any kind of instruction or anything like that they both of my parents left that up to our coach who was intense so but we also know that uh looking back on my career my my father wasn't one of those people who's in the office speaking to the coach every week but when he did come in it, there was an issue hmm. and the coach recognized that and i think from a coach's perspective having been a coach now you want to have those kinds of parents because you have the parents that are constantly on you talking to you about this and that and you know how great is my my kid and and uh, you know he needs to play more or she needs to play more and that becomes uh, monotonous because your focus needs to be on the athlete rather than on the parent so mm -hmm. so what kind of issues did it take for your father to go to your coach Oh, you know, it, it, it might've been a discipline issue, uh, primarily on, on my behalf, something <laughs> that, uh, that I did that was, uh, improper, uh, that he mm. needed to sit down with my coach and say, okay, how do we fix this? What needs to be done? Or if there was something that was completely, uh, serious, my dad never spoke to our coach unless there was something that was of the utmost importance, uh, or if it had to do with, uh, with finances, it was very difficult for my parents to to come up with the money to uh, allow us to go to all these meets. And I still remember my dad at the time. It was in the '80s when the construction was very uh, scarce in New Mexico, and he he was a bricklayer, so he was working up an angel fire during the winters. And so he would show up like the morning of competition before we left for a competition and he would, you know, count out the bills for, for our coach to pay for my brother and I to go to competition. So I think also seeing that was very impactful for me because I knew that what my dad and mom were doing was for us was very valuable. And I think that that instilled in me a, a work ethic that um, if they can go and work this hard to make, an opportunity for me. I need to take advantage of that opportunity. Mm. Do you remember about how old you were when you had that realization to use that and use that as motivation? I, I think I started realizing it around probably 11 or 12. And then as I got older, I started to see it more and more. And uh, I think if you grow up in a certain socioeconomic class you don't realize what I, I don't think you really truly especially without social media in those days you just didn't realize what other people had or didn't have so you feel normal 
Mm-hmm. But there were still those things where, you know, you when you have beans and hot dogs and, you know, cereal and potato soup on a pretty regular basis, I think after a while you start to, re- to realize, hey, this is, you know, there's a, I'm, maybe I'm not quite like everybody else. And, uh, and then you start to really take advantage of the opportunities that, that you see in front of you because you know that this may be the only opportunity. Mm. It's beautiful. There are so many athletes that I've spoken to that are, have come from similar backgrounds and have seen what their parents do for them and have really use that it's essentially love that they're feeling even though they may not see it consciously but that's essentially what they're feeling is the amount of dedication their parents have for them really helps to motivate them in everything that they're doing sounds like you were in that same boat yes but i would caution you about your commentary and the only reason i would do that is because i think that sometimes a parent's dedication to their kids goes beyond their kids. And I think that's where you end up getting into a very dangerous situation where the parent begins living for themselves while they do all Mm -hmm. these things for their kid and they think it's for their child. But in reality, it's because they feel, and, and and I can say, honestly, I have felt that. I have felt that when I watch my kids compete and I feel like if you could just do this, if you could just run faster, if you could just do this, and I have to really temper myself and and put it into context that this isn't about me. This Mm -hmm. is about you. And what Mm -hmm. are the principles and the elements to build a good foundation for a top-notch athlete? And it's not what I can do or what I think I can do, or what I think you should be doing, it's do you love the sport? Do you have some of the natural talents and and elements that take to be a a top-notch athlete? Do you have the will, the drive, and the dedication, and the desire to do that? And because if it's my desire, that's a whole different different question. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So in the work that I do with athletes, where I always I always talk to them that we can approach things from two different manners. We can do the same thing based on a place of ego and how it makes us look and how it makes us feel, or do the exact same thing coming from a place of love. So I think those are those two separate areas. It's a fine line. Sometimes we don't know. We can go on one side or the other and be completely lost sometimes, just like you said, that well, I believe I'm doing this for my child, but really it's for me as well. It is, and, and we have to be honest with ourselves that uh, sports are not uh, inexpensive. There's a lot of dedication and sacrifice, and with that comes the desire. Well, I'm, I as a parent am putting forth all this work, so you as a 8-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old need to know that, and you need to get out there and work harder but we as parents, we have life experience. We understand uh, the dynamics of, of success and also failure, which I think is, in my opinion, more powerful than understanding success. Mm. And, um, 
and and we we try to impart our wisdom without having a child understand and have the experience and so when we do that it puts them in a very precarious situation because they then are saying well i don't really understand how to do this and how to be great or good and you're telling me how i should be but i can't get there without all that experience and that's what years of training having mm -hmm. good solid coaching and coaches they have their own issues they they want to win <laughs> they they want uh they have high expectations not for their athletes sometimes but for themselves mm -hmm. and so you you know you've got a lot of different fronts working and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad mm -hmm. so you mentioned your coach was intense i think that's how you described him so when did you start with that coach and what was it that made him intense and how did that help you or, or hold you back sometimes as an athlete? That's a great question. Well, I, as, I, as I mentioned, we started at Wells Park Community Center and the, the coach there was Steve Vargas. Um, and uh, it, was, it was very recreational and it was nice to be able to, and I, from time to time, we do stay in touch. And he got me started in gymnastics. And I think that that is, uh, you know, I have to be thankful to him for that. But I don't believe, I don't know if that was his first passion, his first love, his only love. And a couple years into gymnastics, my brother and I made it into the state meet. And for whatever reason, um, uh, the coach was, was absent from that competition. And so, I mean, our uniforms, everyone was wearing uniforms. And then my brother and I had white shorts and white t-shirts. That was our, that was our uniform. <laughs> and uh, so my, my dad went over to someone, and I don't know how he selected this guy, but it turned out to be Ed Birch from Gold Cup Gymnastics. Mm. And he said, would you, uh, would you watch over my kids during this meet? And he agreed to. And after that, we decided to go to Gold Cup. And Birch, uh, as we all call him, he, he never wanted to go by Ed, but so we always called him Birch. He was a gymnast himself. And I think uh, in self-reflection from his perspective, he would say he was not a great gymnast. But as a coach, there is no equal. I mean, he is one of the best gymnastic coaches in the world. And to think about that is, is pretty interesting because you say, okay, how does someone go from being probably a, a mediocre at best gymnast to being one of the best coaches in the world? And I think that a lot of people say, well, if you're a great athlete, you're going to be a great coach. Well, that may teach you some of the fundamentals of the sport and the technical aspects of it, but it doesn't teach you the motivational aspects of it. And what, what Birch really understood was how to motivate athletes to get the very best out of them every single day and when you're able to do that over years and years um, year over year you get the very best out of your athletes so he understood I think he was very driven as a young man even today I think he's very driven it's it's very difficult I think in the sport of gymnastics at the moment to to push kids but he knew how to do it uh, in a very unique way that I think 
resonated with us, obviously, because I, I want to say we've had five or six Olympians come out of that gym. And I want to say it's the most Olympians of any private club for a male gym in the world. Wow. So he, he knows how to produce the best athletes and he knows how to get the best out of them. So that's a, that's a real talent. Not everybody can do that. Mm-hmm. What are a couple things that he did to help get the most out of you? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> And we can censor things, no problem on this. So. No, that, I, I, I think that it's a very different time frame today than it was when I was an athlete. And I think the first thing that an athlete today or at any time period in history has to think about, if you want to be the very best in the world, you are going to have to do what other people are unwilling to do. And that mindset has to, has, to, has to sit in your head and has to be a part of your life. And you have to work harder. You have to be more dedicated. You have to be willing to put yourself in high-pressure situations. And a lot of people cannot handle that. I would say very few people can handle that level of intensity. And... Um, so it, it, he knew how to, to build intensity inside of the gym. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I would say is that he treated everyone equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not friends with anybody in the gym, although uh, Birch and I are very close now. We weren't that close then. It was a love-hate relationship. And, uh, but we respected him regardless of what of – what, uh, he said or did we we had this respect for him and that was that's where i think you have to start is respect he mm-hmm. treated everybody equally meaning if you were 1 minute late to the gym either the door was locked or you had to do 100 handstands for every minute you were late and oh, if you wow. were 10 minutes late that was a thousand handstands mm-hmm. against you kicking up and down against the wall which would take you about two and a half hours and after that, you couldn't work out because you're, mm-hmm. you were so exhausted from your shoulders being tired. But what we didn't know that he knew is that even in the punishment for being late, he was building something in us. One, mm-hmm. punctuality. Two, strength. Because after you did a thousand handstands, <laughs> after you were, it actually was like doing strength for two and a half hours straight. And you you do that a few times, you you just end up getting very very strong. So, and then I think one of the things that was probably and I and I grapple with this a little bit because I think that there are different methods, but certainly for Birch and Gold Cup and my career it was exceptional. Is that he created an atmosphere of competition on a daily basis? It was very competitive very competitive. And I would say, in all actuality, um, I think I'm friendly with many of the guys that I grew up with um, and who also went to the Olympics, but I wouldn't say I was. I am friends. And that's because every single day we were competing. Every single day. And that created a little bit of, I mean, we all wanted to win. But, I mean, the reality was is that only one can win. 
And uh, I was at the tail end of that, unfortunately, for most of my career. But it, you know, uh, that was something. That's a that's another subject matter. Mm. Yes, gymnastics is an interesting sport because you're a team, but you're also competing against each other within the team. You know, how did you find that balance, or was there a balance to try and support each other? while also trying to be better than the person you're trying to support? Uh, the answer to that is an emphatic no. <laughs> uh, because literally, you were competing with everyone every single day in our gym. And I can remember, I mean, gymnastics, everyone thinks that gymnastics isn't that tough of a sport. But when you're swinging around a high bar, you know, and you're flying through the air and you miss that bar on your way down doing a release move and catch that bar across your face. Mm. Um, and then you fall another nine feet, you know, mm. to your back or to your side. Um, it hurts. Mm -hmm. And I can remember one of those issues where I had done as I had missed the bar and let go at the wrong time. And I, I caught the bar across my chest. I still have these bumps on my arm from the bone that grew there from the bruises. Mm. I remember hitting that. And one of the other guys saying, uh, Hey, if you're going to cry, can you roll over to the other side? So I, <laughs> so I can go. And that's the kind of real toughness that, uh. I mean, we were building in each other. And when you get out onto the world stage, nobody cares, honestly, who you are, what you've done, what you're feeling, they just want to crush you. And that's something that you have to be willing to train for. And Birch knew how to train for that. He knew how to get us ready to be competitors. And I mean, just amongst the athletes that were there, we're not even talking about the Olympians. I would say during my years there between 75 and 96, I would say 90% of all his male gymnasts got division one college scholarships. Mm. I mean, and that's impressive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, we haven't really talked about your brother and you guys, I imagine were training together. And now, you know, you just mentioned that you don't support the other athlete, but I imagine with your brother it may have been a little bit different. How is your guys's relationship as gymnasts well my brother was known as the bull and mm -hmm. that's because there is not another person who worked harder than my brother mm -hmm. and i would say a great deal of my success um, although again i want to temper that against the reality and the honesty saying that 90 percent of my career maybe even 90 to 95% of my career was a, was a total failure. Um, but that's how athletics is. I mean, especially as individual sport uh, that is so precise, like gymnastics, you're going to make mistakes. And sometimes it's, you know, if you're off by a millimeter, that's enough to send you to the ground. But in terms of my brother, he really was a role model someone to look toward and say, that's how hard I have to work. Um, my parents raised us to be very, very close. And I idolized my brother and I still do. And I would say that 
much of what I am today is because of who he was and how hard he worked because he just, every single day, he would just work so incredibly hard. And I, I learned from that. I watched that. I saw that. And when you're young like that, you just, you don't really know what you're doing. You just follow it. You just see that as an example and you do it. And because of that example, it allowed me to be successful later on in life because that is what it takes to be successful. You have to work um, and you have to figure out a way to get past failure uh, because in gymnastics, there's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. What was the age difference between you two? 18 months. So he's Mm. just a little bit older than me. uh, And, uh, you know, he went off to the university of Nebraska and that was a very difficult time for me. And, uh, he was on the national team. He was on Traveled the World uh, as part of the national team. Was on mm-hmm. two or three NCAA national championship teams, uh, All American. So I mean, he had his uh, he had a, a spectacular career. But sometimes I think parents and the media and even individuals think to themselves, "Well, if I didn't do X." then the rest of it was a failure. And I think that that is such a wrong approach toward athletics. Mm. Mm. So is that why you chose to go to university of Nebraska to follow him? Yep. Yep. Uh, it actually was, it was probably my dad more than my brother. My dad said brothers should be together and you should go to, it would be great if you th- would think seriously about going to Nebraska to be with your brother. And, and quite frankly, I needed to be, I wasn't very mature. Um, I mean, I still feel like I'm maybe hitting my stride in maturity, but <laughs> you're, you're peaking. That's uh, good. Maybe, uh, <laughs> or maybe I'm on the way back down. But uh, <laughs> as a, as a young man, uh, I just, I was wild and crazy and I needed that stability and my brother was very serious and stable. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was pretty spectacular being able to follow him to the university of Nebraska. And I had scholarships to, you know, 70 universities or however many, I think I had a scholarship offer from every university in the country at that time. Mm. If I wanted to go there and I was academically uh, able to to get in, I could have went. But mm. uh, and I probably, if if not for my brother, I probably would have went to UCLA. And my career, my entire trajectory would have been completely different. Mm. Um, so I think that there is divine intervention in certain areas in my life that I can't explain, and this is one of them. But it was it really was a great experience to be a part of a, an NCAA championship team, uh, to learn. And I think that I, I matured quite a bit athletically at the University of Nebraska, and I'm not exactly sure why. But I think it has to do with the fact that you are no longer an individual gymnast in college. You were fighting for the team. Mm. And that different type of pressure and training methods uh, taught me how to be consistent. And that was the one thing I really lacked at Gold Cup. uh, And this isn't Birch's fault. It was my fault. 
I just couldn't learn that because I didn't have the right environment to be taught how to be consistent. Hmm. But I learned that at Nebraska and, uh, and I, and I credit, uh, Jim Howard and, and Francis Allen for that to, to teach me that consistency. Hmm. So you stayed, I think, for a year there and then decided to ex- to go train for the Olympics. Is that correct? It is. And uh, it, is a, a, it is quite a story, to be honest with you. And the University of Nebraska at that time was the number one gymnastics uh, university in the country. They produced Olympians. It was the place where you went if you felt like you wanted to go on beyond the NCAA uh, trajectory. And it was a great year. All-American, NCAA champion, second in the, uh, I think I'd split, placed on some of the events individually, I think three different events individually. I was an anchor on the team as a freshman. So it was pretty spectacular uh, being on the podium and winning it. I mean, I think we beat the University of Minnesota by one-tenth of a point. So oh, wow. it was very, very close uh, on Minnesota's home ground. And then it was very – I had come home, and I think that was in April, uh, and I went back to the gym, and I had watched Lance Ringnold, who was an 88 Olympian, also trained at Gold Cup and was a year older than I was. He ended up not going to college, and I was watching him compete on television. I thought, holy cow. It, I, because my ultimate goal was not to get a college scholarship. My ultimate goal was to make an Olympic team. That was my goal. And I remember watching Lance on television and thinking, holy cow, there is no way I'm going to make an Olympic team unless I can do the level of skills that he does and um, so I better get get to training. So I called my coach. I said, listen, I want to start training twice a day. I want to come into the gym at 6 and then train for a couple hours, then go to class, and then I'll come back at 2 and train for another few hours. And the coach said, yeah, absolutely, great. And the first day I go into the gym, the lights are on, the heat is on, but there's no coach. And I was like, What? So for about a week, my brother and I were training on our own in the mornings, and it just it just doesn't it just doesn't work very well. You really, <laughs> even at even at uh, you know in your late teens and your early twenties, I really am a firm believer that you don't do this alone. Even though it's an individual sport, it just doesn't happen by itself. You need to have that guidance. You need to have somebody watching over you, looking after you, and saying, "Hey, you know, your body needs to be in this position, or you need to turn over." So that your 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 back handspring will be faster, so that you when you go into your, you know, full in back out or double double or whatever it might be, uh, well, you can make it to your feet. All you need is X or all you need is Y. And he just what the the coaches at Nebraska weren't their their goal had been accomplished. The NCAA's was accomplished, and they mm. plus they had so many Olympians go through their program, they pretty much knew that. The, the, the process was you go to Nebraska, you spend your four or five years there, then you train for the Olympics. But I was so quick uh, and I had been trained so well at Gold Cup, it was fascinating. There was a guy who was on the 88 Olympic team. I could 
we'd all get to the gym at the same time, but I could go through and complete an entire workout going and doing four events or five events before that guy could even go to his first event. That's how mm. fast I had gotten. That's how consistent I had become. And so uh, when I left for the summer to come back to Albuquerque uh, to, to train, I trained with Birch and I wanted to learn all these new skills and having somebody like Lance who was already doing them, he could help me out. And I would say if there was somebody of that generation who was a, a friend of mine, it would be Lance because, you know, he, Lance was a very interesting guy. The most interesting competitor, probably the most talented gymnast the United States has ever seen is Lance mm. Wow! and um, spectacular just didn't feel fear at all. Like every time I went into a competition, I was scared. <laughs> I was scared yeah. of failure. I was scared of, of not doing what I wanted to do. Um, but that guy, just nothing faced him. Nothing mm. faced him. And I learned a little bit from him on that, on that uh, front, but not, I mean, I was always worried that I would never compete well. And, uh, but Lance, he could, he could do amazing things. He could not work out for a week, which in gymnastics time is like months. If you mm -hmm. don't train, if you don't train for one month in gymnastics, that's it. Your, 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 your season is over. So you always have to stay healthy. So I went back to New Mexico, learned all these skills, had the consistency from Nebraska, had the solid work ethic, had Ed Birch watching over, training us, you know, six, six to eight hours a day and went to the national championships and placed fourth. And that was like a shocker. I don't think I'd ever broached the top 10. And this was mm. nine, this was uh, 91. So it was a year before the Olympics and it was a little bit more than a year before the Olympics, but uh, that was it. You know, it was like Birch and I kind of sat down and had this conversation and he's like, you know, what do you want? And ultimately what I wanted was to be on an Olympic team. So I had to sit, have that conversation with, with the head coach of Nebraska and let him know that I was not going to return. And, but before I did that, before I had that conversation, I sat down with my brother and I said, if I leave Nebraska, you're going to be a pariah this is going to fall on your shoulders, not mine. And he said, if you feel like you can do this and this is your decision, if you want to do this, I can take it. I can take whatever they throw at me. And um, kind of with that permission, I told the head coach that that was it. I was, I was going to stay at Gold Cup. I became the first athlete to ever leave an NCAA program, much less the best in the country to train for the Olympic games. And, um, I was also one of the first amateur athletes to receive money. And at that time, I think I received, I don't know, somewhere between 800 and a thousand dollars a month to train for the Olympics. Wow. So you made it to the 92 team and you had a pretty good experience on the high bar. And I watched it 
uh, <laughs> your event and you're just so smooth on that. And the announcer said you weren't really hitting your, your, your catches, I guess, or your, your, uh, elements in the warmups. No, I mean, gymnastics is one of those sports that, uh, you have to be right on. I mean, right on, if you're off, like I said, a millimeter, you're off the bar. But I think the story is not so much Barcelona, but leading up to Barcelona. And uh, it was the training between 1990 and 1992. It was tough. It was the only thing that we did. Birch was utterly driven to make sure that we made that team and nothing was going to stand in that way. And not even ourselves when I can honestly say that I was an impediment, impediment to my own success. And uh, there was a time when I remember thinking, Oh my God, Birch and I were just not getting along. And I remember it must've been like midnight. I actually called the coach from Nebraska and I called the assistant coach, Jim Howard. And I asked him, if there was any possible way I could come back to Nebraska. And he said, you made your bed. Now you got to sleep in it. <laughs> mm, wow. And, uh, and it really didn't matter. Cause at that point I, and I didn't realize it, that the amateur athletic rules would have precluded me from re-engaging and joining an NCAA program because I had accepted money. Mm. Um, so that wasn't a possibility. So there was, there were no options for me. It was this way. Um, or the highway. And one of the things that Birch did, and I, I don't know definitively if he did it for me, um, or if, again, it was uh, just something that uh, just happened in, by fortuity, is Birch hired another coach from Australia who was in Australia. They don't have NCAA gymnastics. They just have international gymnastics. And his approach to gymnastics was much different than Birch's. And I think at that time I needed a different kind of philosophy, something that felt nicely in between, you know, complete competitiveness on a daily basis. And, and, and that guy's name was John Curtin. John taught me how to want things myself. Cause I think for the most part, I was almost always doing gymnastics for somebody else. And, um, and that works for me. It actually really works for me, but he also taught me that I can, I can be friends with other people. I can, I can compete as part of a group and to, and just to take a different approach. And he kind of lightened the load for me uh, emotionally. And I think philosophically to allow me to, to train better. Mm. And um, the, the next couple of years were, were pretty good. Uh, I competed at the, the uh, Pan American games and at the Goodwill games. And it, it was 1991 and I was at the Pan American games in Cuba and we're having an okay competition. Uh, but I was in the training room with another athlete and the trainer said, Hey, can you hand me that roll of tape? And I grabbed the roll of tape and I handed it to the trainer and he said, why did you hand me that roll of tape in the fashion that you did? And by that, he meant that my elbow was secured against my torso and I grabbed the roll of tape with my fingers without moving my elbow away from my torso and then handed it to him. And he said, put your arms up, turn your 
thumbs down to the floor. And he said, and try to hold your arms there. And with one finger, he pushed my right shoulder. He pushed my right arm all the way down to the ground. He's like, you need to try to hold it there. I said, I am trying to hold it there. And so he's like, man, you've got some serious problems. And so we had some MRIs. It turned out I had rotator cuff tears in both of my shoulders. We were a year out from the Olympics and there was no time for surgery. So it was in addition to training every single day, I ended up having to do physical therapy every single day. And, and the, the biggest event and the worst event was still rings. Because you, if you can imagine going from a handstand on the still rings and you come down through the bottom and you're kind of going backwards, so your back is, against, is, a, is going up toward the ceiling, your shoulders and your arms essentially inlocate, which means you're, 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 you're grinding the innards of your shoulder. And I had a tear in both shoulders. So your bone locks into that tear within your uh, tendons and the only way you have all this weight and your pressure. So eventually the pressure pops it out and rings got to the point where it was so painful. I didn't even warm up. I would sit there. I would get enough courage and energy to go up and do one routine and then I would get off and I would let the pain subside for 10 or 15 minutes and then I'd get up and do another routine. And it was probably it was the most painful couple of years for me. Uh, and it was so bad. My shoulders were so weak that I couldn't even turn on the radio on my, in my car. Wow. But after a year's worth of physical therapy, I was probably at 80%. It didn't negate the pain, but this is one of the elements that is important. It's probably the most, it's the secret sauce, I think, to being a great athlete. And that is desire. Mm. Your desire to do what other people are unwilling to do and to push yourself beyond a level uh, that even you think you can do can only be done through the desire of being great or mm. accomplishing a particular goal. That goal for me was making an Olympic team. And there is nothing that would have stood in my way. I'd already given up a scholarship. I had already uh, injured myself, and this was it. This was probably my one and only shot. As it turns out, it was my one and only shot. I did not make 88, and I did not make 96. So 92 was it for me. I didn't know that at the time, but I think you have to treat every event as though this is the only time that you're going to be able to do it because you don't know what the future is going to hold. And I think mm -hmm. that sometimes we think that we have all this future left for us and things can take a, a dramatic turn for us. So you have to take advantage of that. You have to love it and you have to desire to do what it is you do. And if that desire comes from your parents pushing you, it's, it's never going to work. It will never work. So as we move along the storyline to the Olympic trials, they had done something, so basically the entire country competes in a regional meet. The top 48 go to the national championships from the top 48, the top 18 end up going to Olympic trials, and then the top six are the Olympic team. Of the 18 guys, I think five of those guys are from the University of Nebraska. 
And the USA Gymnastics Federation did something they'd never done before. They selected the Olympic coach before the Olympic team was selected. And you earned your spot. It's different today. Today, it's a selection procedure based on a lot of different competition, your history, your experience. In my day, you could have been the best gymnast in the world. And if you had a bad day at Olympic trials and you fell off an event or two and you didn't make the team and you were seventh or eighth, that's it. You were done. You never got to compete in Olympic Games. And that happened to a lot of gymnasts. So the pressure was pretty significant. The Gymnastics Federation selected Francis Allen, the head coach of the University of Nebraska, as the head coach for the Olympics, <laughs> for the Olympic team, before the Olympics, before Olympic trials were over. And as it turned out, not one athlete from the University of Nebraska made it onto that team so as you can imagine there was this anxiety for him and for me about me being on that team and i don't i can't say for certain but um i think that there was some pent-up anger and and this was the time to release it because he made all the decisions and by decisions i mean the worst athlete on your team always goes first and then you build your score on a uh, as the athletes go along. First guy gets a, a 9.0, next guy gets a 9.2, next guy gets a 9.4, et cetera. And that's when we were on the 10.0 system. And so he puts me up first, basically in, in every rotation, in every section, on every event, except for high bar, because there's just no way that he could do that. But... Um, as luck would have it or, or divine intervention, I make it into finals on high bar at the Olympics. I can tell you more about that story. <laughs> please, I'm sitting here. Okay. <laughs> at the edge of my seat. Yeah, oh, okay. Please. So it is um, August. Uh, it's early August uh, at the Palo San Jordi in Barcelona, Spain. Um, and I'm preparing to, uh, go into finals. I've got two other guys on finals, Jair Lynch on parallel bars and Chris Waller on uh, Palma horse. And I'm on high bar in the Olympic order. High bar is the last event. And it was, uh, pretty nerve wracking. I think the, the days prior, I remember essentially staying up all night long thinking I could win a gold medal. I could, I can do this. This can happen. And, uh, and then finally I, you know, I stayed up to about three o'clock in the morning and then just fell asleep and it's like, no, I can't do that. Then the next night it was the silver medal. And then the next night it was the bronze medal. And then finally I was like, well, you know what? I'm in finals. I'm top 10, you know, I'm a top 10 athlete in the world. That should be good enough for me. And, uh, so we leave the, uh, athletes village at about three o'clock warmups start at five o'clock. Uh, the meet starts at seven o'clock. And at those days they had all the men's six events in the same day. So Palma horse comes around, uh, at about eight thirty, something like that. Chris Waller places. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was fourth, maybe, maybe six. I can't recall. Then still rings, then vaulting, then parallel bars. And it is already after 11 o'clock at night. Um, it was actually closing in on midnight. And I was in the practice gym 
and there's a there's a knock on the door and in comes the head of USA gymnastics men's gymnastics program and he was a Texan and his name was Robert Cowan and he said well Trent how are you feeling and I said well I'm 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 doing well I'm pretty nervous though and he said well good don't don't worry about a thing you've got this um, but we just wanted to come in here and encourage you and let you know that you're our last hope for a medal <laughs> and I, I was like you you know after sitting in a gym for five hours waiting for your event to come up you've finally relaxed a little bit and to have somebody come back in and, and add that pressure it was just it, it was inconceivable and then so he leaves and I'm like oh my gosh this is crazy so I start knowing that my events coming up so you start uh getting nervous you start shaking you start uh, thinking about all the what-ifs and then there's another knock on the door and in comes uh, someone who I knew pretty well her name was Beth Ruyak and she was actually the commentator one of the sports commentators for NBC and she said oh Trent how are you feeling and I said Beth I'm I was fine until Robert came in here and told me all this <laughs> stuff and she's like oh Trent don't worry about that I just have a little bit of exciting news for you that uh, we've decided that this show is going to run prime time back in the United States, and we've decided to make the whole show about you. Oh, wow. And I thought... <laughs> what timing. Huh? Yeah, I mean, what are people thinking when... I think that they want to be a part of the excitement, and they want you to feel happy about what it is that's going on. But that type of pressure is not... That's not the right time to bring on... <laughs> those added pieces of pressure. And so I thought, this is just crazy. And so I leave the practice gym, you go out, and the way the equipment is set up today is you, if you've watched any international gymnastic competitions, you will see that the, that the event is actually on a podium. So it's sitting probably about four feet above the ground. It's the only event the judges are sitting on the floor, you know, uh, behind desks. So they're looking up at the event. And you get what you call a one-touch. That means that you get 30 seconds to go up and kind of feel the high bar, do whatever it is that you're going to do. And I have this skill that I did. is called a Kovacs. And it means I'm swinging around the high bar in a circular motion. And as I speed up, I let go on the front side and I do a double flip over the bar. And as I'm coming back on the back side of the bar, I open up and hopefully the bar is there. <laughs> I decide to do that during my one touch. I let wow. go of the I let go of the bar at the wrong time, and on the way back down, I catch my chin on the bar. Mm. And I thought to myself, "Oh gosh, this is this is just horrible, horrible. This is going to be a huge failure. This is going to be this is just going to be a mess." Um, and that's when you really start worrying. You worrying yourself about how I'm going to do. And, and I never, ever, ever watch other athletes, and I never looked at scores, not ever. And um, so, but I could hear the crowd roaring. You know, the first guy gets up there, and he was from Japan. He scores like a, like a 9.75, which is pretty good for the first guy that goes up. Second guy goes third. We've got two world champions, uh, Grigory Masutin from the unified team, uh, formerly Russia uh, was was up there, and he does his routine. And we many people the dismount is really important. If you stick your dismount, it's really tough 
for people to, you know, to, to take anything away from you on the dismount. But literally every kind of leg flinch, everything matters in gymnastics because you've got six or eight judges on the event. And typically, as you know, gymnastics is a subjective sport. So it's not like track and field where you, you know, as soon as the, they take off, it's all by time. In gymnastics, you know, you, it's that joke where they say, oh, the Russian goes high on Russians and vice versa for an American. Well, that is indeed true. Unfortunately for me on this event, there were no American judges. So I didn't have the advantage of having anybody help me uh, balance out that inequality as it, as it relates to judging. So Grigory Masutin goes up and does his routine and he does a triple somersault. And there was, I think, three of us that did triple somersaults. And those are very, very difficult dismounts because you're on the high bar, which is nine feet tall, and then you're swinging around, you let go, and you do a triple somersault. And for me, when I let go, if I say one, two, three, open, as fast as I just said that, that means I have let go of the bar, I've done three flips, and when I open, the floor should be beneath me. One, two, three, open. That's how fast, that's literally how fast it happens to do three flips wow. and, and you land. The speed that you have coming off the bar, which is one of the reasons why many people do not do that dismount anymore, is it's so fast going in a circular motion that when you open up, if you're just a little bit off, you'll either over-rotate it or you open too early to try to stop your speed and you under-rotate it. That's the difficulty of the triple somersault. So Grigori Masutin gets up, does his triple somersault, and takes a step backwards. And I think he scores, uh, I think, a 9.812. Uh, and then uh, Andreas Wecker, who was from, from Germany, and Eberhard Ginger, who was the former Olympic champion, was the head judge. So he had that advantage. Does a great routine. He does his triple somersault, and he steps forward. And as I mentioned earlier, in gymnastics, the scores continue to escalate as you go on later on in, in, in the rotation. And by the luck of the draw, I was seventh out of eight of the athletes. The guy who was up next was Lee Jing. He was the guy that was just before me. And he, great athlete. I think he was a world champion. So he gets up on high bar and, and he's doing all these great He's doing a great routine, and he does this release like I do. Mine was a double backflip. He did a double front over the bar, but on the way down, he misses the bar and slams down to the ground. Well, he knows it's over for him. So instead of finishing his routine, and in gymnastics, every element that you do in your routine gives you a certain amount of points, and those certain amount of points add to a 10.0. And then once you have that 10.0, then if you take a step or you have a fall or you have a leg separation or you hit the bar, all of those then become deductions. Well, he just jumps up on, back up on the bar and does a dismount. So he's missing all of these skills and the, the judges don't know how to, how to rate his routine. Well, I'm next up. And there is a huge billboard uh, behind the high bar, has all the scores on it. And there's a smaller board with a red light and a green light. And when the, the red light's on, it means you can get up onto the podium, but you may not start your routine. So I'm going through my routine in my head over and over and over. 
And uh, oftentimes I look at the bar and go through my routine mentally. And I look up at the bar and I see the scores. And as I said before, I never look at scores because it adds more pressure that you don't need. And I see Grigory Masutin and Andreas Vecker at 9.812. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to score a 10 to win. And it, it was just this time where you just are so nervous to the point where I couldn't keep chalk on my hands because of the sweat. And the judges <laughs> couldn't figure out what, you know, how to score Li Jing's routine. So I'm standing there up on the podium by myself. And I was the only person that was tall enough to jump up to the high bar by myself. Everybody else had their coach up there with them. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. I was probably up there for six or seven minutes by myself, just thinking, oh my gosh, wow. oh my gosh. Um, one thing I haven't mentioned, and I think I may have alluded to it before, was my upbringing. Um, and so for me, uh, I think a lot of people ask me, you know, why did you do this? Why do you think you won? What was your motivating factor for being a great athlete? And why is it that you did all these great things? I can't really explain many of them, but one of the things that I always had in my head um, was that no matter what I did in gymnastics, whether it be good or whether it was was bad, is that I did my sport, I did my gymnastics for the glory of God. And so for me, mm-hmm. that was the only driving factor. And I remember thinking to myself before I went, maybe if I hold back that I can possibly win a medal. And should I hold back? And the green light goes on. The judges look up. And I look up at the high bar. I salute the judge. And I put my head down for one moment. And I said, Lord, this is for you. And I jump up to the bar and I begin doing the skills that uh, I have in my routine. And it was so unusual. Never has this ever happened to me before that it was, an, I was literally talking to myself. And I had three release moves, big ones. The first was the Kovacs, the double flip over the bar. I let go, I catch it. And I said, oh my God, I caught it perfectly. <laughs> and I said, okay, I've got the reverse hect, which was another flip over the bar and immediately going into a backflip with a half turn to recatch the bar. And I caught that and I said, oh my God, it's going to come down to this dismount and I am swinging as fast and as hard as I possibly can. And I let go and, and say, one, two, three, open. And the ground is right under me. And if you look at the footage today, I even say, oh my God, <laughs> because I could not believe that I did that routine at that moment because I'd just never done one so good. Mm. And um, it was the absolute neatest feeling because I remember my coach, there are, there are certain rules about getting on the podium at certain times and they can actually be a deduction if a coach gets onto the podium at certain times during your routine. And I just, I literally ran off the podium and jumped into his arms and I, I, I 
I hugged him with my arms and my legs, uh, which is a bit embarrassing, but I think, <laughs> you know, it was, it represents the joy of the moment that Birch had put in so many years. And that guy, I mean, he really dedicated his life to his athletes and sacrificed so much. And it was really a blessing to be able to, to share that moment with him and to, and to, to know that that man, all the hard work, all the dedication, all the years, decades could pay off for him in such a way through a performance that, that I had. And we got to share that together. And I remember he just said, you won, you won, you won. And I said, not yet, not yet. Cause you know, you know, know what a judge mm -hmm. sees or what they don't want to see or what they're trying to see so that they can bring your score down. And I just remember looking at that huge scoreboard and it was one of the old kind of ticker tape type of boards. Mm -hmm. And the, I'm waiting for my score and all of a sudden this, the athlete scores of Grigori Masutin and Andreas Vecker, they drop, it goes chunk and you could hear it. And before my score went up, I knew that my score was going to go up at the top. And it was, it was a 9.875. And it was just shocking to think that at that point I was the best and that I had won. And, but there was still one more athlete. And that <laughs> athlete, I watched his routine like I was doing one of my own and, and it all really just came down. His routine wasn't quite as difficult but it really came down to the dismount and the fact that he was last and he landed and took a hop and took another hop. And there was no way with the deductions that are required by rules that he could beat me. And so there you go. It was, wow. it was, uh, it was really, uh, I, I like to say divine intervention because I mean, I had done all the work that I could do, but I had never done any routine like that and to do it under that type of pressure at that moment has to take uh, some type of exterior force that is beyond me. So. Mm. Wow. What an incredible, incredible story. And you had to deal with so much psychological adversity that, that whole evening, you know, it, just unreal. It was, but uh, it all comes back down to, I think your training and how people, the time they put into you, because I think even in, especially young people today, they think they can do everything themselves and our media and our, and the social media and the television, as you, you, you don't see these athletes anywhere. And then you see a 15 minute expose and then you see them signing a contract worth, you know, 25 million or $40 million. And you're like, Oh, that took that guy like five minutes to get there. And they don't see all of the, all the hard work that goes behind that, they just don't see it. And mm. I think that's missed. It's a, it's a mistake that I think a lot of parents make. I think it's a lot of a mistake that athletes make that these are journeys that if you're not enjoying that road along the way that, it, it, and, I, and I'll say this, is that all the athletes on my Olympic team wanted to win gold they would talk about it openly. I had met my goal, which was the Olympic team. That was my goal. I'd never thought 
before I made it into finals that I even had a shot at winning. Never. And so that did bring a lot of relaxation for me because I could go out and compete and have fun and enjoy the moment rather than focusing in on, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I'm going to win gold, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. It's added pressure that you don't need. And I'm always shocked when you hear an athlete say, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to win another gold. Now, it is different in swimming. It is different in track and field because if you have the fastest time for the last year in track and field in the 100, well, chances are you're going to win. In gymnastics, mm -hmm. that's never the truth. Mm -hmm. Anything can happen. Wow. So how do you try and... I don't want to say instill this knowledge, but share this knowledge with your children while they go through their own athletic journey. Well, the first thing is, is that I try not to live through them. And the most important thing for me as I, once I had kids was that they did not do gymnastics hmm. because no matter what, I mean, the chances of it happening are so small that they would have been at the level that I was at that it, you're almost setting them up for failure. And so that was the first thing I wanted to do was to make sure that they weren't in the sport of gymnastics. And luckily, both of them are extremely tall, so it wouldn't have worked out. <laughs> so that's the first thing. Uh, and it is very... So, for example, I've got a friend, his name is Valeri Liukin, and he competed in the same Olympic Games that I did. I want to say he won the team. He was second or third in the all-around, and he won a myriad of individual uh, events. I mean, I don't think he – I think he won floor exercise, but he didn't uh, – uh, no, he must have not won a gold medal, but he had probably four – maybe five Olympic medals, none of them gold. His daughter, he, he then defected to the United States. He trained his daughter um, and she won, she competed for the U.S. in 2008 and um, Nastia Lukin won oh, the gold. Yeah. And I was in Beijing and spoke to him directly after he, she won. And you know what he said to me? He said, finally, I am vindicated that, that we have won gold. Mm -hmm. And I thought, one of the most decorated athletes in the world, world champion, European champion, Olympic champion, uh, multiple medals from all of those competitions, but because it was not gold, it just was never enough for him. And then he trained his daughter to win and I thought how satisfying but yet the amount of pressure mm -hmm. um, wow that's 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 a lot so for my mm -hmm. kids it was very specific not to be in gymnastics that was the first thing the second thing was to love what it is that you do and enjoy that journey and as an example my daughter is a is a very good cross-country runner she's also a great soccer player and we got to the point where both of them were, their practices were on the same day, on the same days. And everybody wants you to be 
all the coaches want you to be there 100% of the time every single day because it shows that you're dedicated to what it is that you do. And I, you know, I thought, okay, we're going to have to come to some kind of a decision here. And so I, I, my question to her is, which one do you love? Not which one are you better at? Which one it can get you a college scholarship? Which one can make you a professional athlete? It was, which one do you love? And immediately she said soccer. Mm. And even now, I mean, she still runs just to keep up her fitness. But, but as an example, like yesterday, I said, hey, do you want to go work out? And she goes, what are we doing? And she goes, soccer, soccer. And so she was so excited about it. And that's the kind of thing that you want to see in your child. That's the kind of thing, because you can only push your child so much. You can only show them the way. They have to do the work. You can't do it for them. And if they don't love it, guess what? It's just not going to happen. I don't care how much you push your child. And all you're going to do is ruin that relationship. And, you know, that's... uh, so for my kids, it is not gymnastics, find out what you love, and then support them in a way that empowers them to do what it is that they want to do. Um, and that means taking them to practice every single day. I, I do kind of, I follow my dad's example. I sit back, I watch, I take video, I sit down and say, okay, well, and I'm honest. I don't say, oh, hey, you're awesome. You're so good. I'm honest with them and say, you know, you had, you missed this. That goal was your fault. But, but here's how you can, here's how you can not make that mistake again. And I'm willing to go to you, go to the park with you and spend a few extra days working on this. Or I'm willing to go run with my son up these huge hills that nearly give me a heart attack every time I do it. <laughs> and, and, it's, and, it's, and I think that that's the joy of also being a parent is that I get to experience some of these things with them. Um, and I have to force, especially with my son, I have to force my way into his life in mm. doing something that he likes to do because otherwise, you know, friends and you know, video games, electronics, they will subsume him. And uh, this is a way for me to be my, be a parent and be my son's confidant and to help him accomplish what he wants to do. And at the same time, get a little bit healthier myself and, Mm -hmm. uh, and enjoy that time together and, and have something to talk about other than, you know, movies and, you know, Star Wars and, and video games. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's great advice. Great advice. I applaud you as a, a parent. Well, um, I don't know if it's, uh, I think it's working out in terms of my kids because they're happy. And I think at the end of the day, uh, that's important. And as I, and I was, I, as I was saying a, a moment earlier, my teammates wanted gold and that's that was their focus. My goal was to make an Olympic team. And had I not won the Olympic gold, I think, and I can't say this definitively because I don't know, but I think I would have been just as satisfied because 
I was enjoying the ride. I mean, I did everything there was possibly to do at the Olympic Games. A lot of my teammates didn't even want to walk in opening ceremonies. I was like, you are nuts. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm walking. And even though it was the day before our competition, I was like, I'm going. I want to meet every single person. I have friends from all over the world. Um, but I was enjoying the experience. And if your goal is solely to win, you're setting yourself up. Because I can mm. tell you, as I mentioned earlier, most of my career, 90 to 95% of it was a failure because you can't always be on. But what happens with all that failure is you learn from it, you end up minimizing your failures through training to eventually over decades, you end up getting yourself to a position where the chances of you succeeding are greater than those of you failing. And that's what's important is enjoying that ride it's all about the journey instead of the outcome you know yeah it's amazing. for sure it's happiness yeah we have the same talk with a lot of the athletes i interview it's amazing yeah yeah so i have some lightning round questions for you before we wrap up um but feel free to take your time if you want what sport would you have wanted to put your dedication towards other than gymnastics football and by football i mean soccer that was one of the sports that i started with gymnastics and the state meet and a state championship uh soccer match fell within an hour of each other and my dad mm -hmm. said okay and my dad was the coach he said okay guys you're gonna have to make a decision um, I'm not sure I made that decision. I think I just followed my brother. Um, <laughs> probably the right decision, but you know, footy as we call it is such a great sport. I really mm -hmm. like it. I like the team atmosphere. I like how not everything is just on your own shoulders. And um, I really do think it's a it's a great sport. And having having lived in Spain and and uh, seeing the craziness around it, it's it's uh, it's mm -hmm. it's quite neat. Beautiful. So are you a Barcelona fan? Uh, Real Madrid. Oh, sorry. Man. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. I'll forgive you. <laughs> well, well, my, my daughter, uh, my daughter just received a car for her, uh, for a Jeep for her birthday and she named it CR seven. So, <laughs> all right. You guys are dedicated towards them. That's all right. It's okay. Um, what athlete did you look up to the most when you were young? Uh, that's a great question. I, there was a one athlete, his name was Scott Johnson and Scott Johnson was on the 84 Olympic team winning team gold also attended the university of Nebraska. And what I loved about him was he was so approachable and I want to say it, I can't remember what year it was, but he brought his Olympic medal with him to one of the competitions and I got to see it. And when I think when you realize that, hey, this guy is normal, he's human, if he can do it, I can do it. Uh, and he was just such a nice guy. And I think that that's one thing I, I just can't stand is our athletes that are, that are very arrogant. Because I think you have to be confident. But I think there's a fine line between being confident and knowing that you can do what it is that you need to do and being arrogant 
showing people and telling people that, yeah, in your face. And I think that mm. the vitriol uh, that is in a lot of things today needs to be tempered by a, a gentlemanly sportsmanship type of attitude. Mm. Beautiful. So did you have a go-to meal before big meat? No, no, no meals. Um, just, uh, eat well and make sure that you were as light as possible before competition. I mean, it's so hard to eat before, before competitions and our competitions were long. Sometimes they lasted four or five hours. So you had to eat well, much more in advance of a competition because you really could not eat probably two or three hours before your competition. So you hadn't eaten for seven hours by the time a competition was over. Wow. How do you keep your blood sugar levels um, up? Now or then? Then. Then. Uh, you know, you people don't realize how many calories you burned, but we were training somewhere between six and eight hours a day, six days a week, 51 weeks a year for decades. Um, you can only eat so much. So we were, I mean, I would probably burn through 6,000 calories a day. So I would pretty wow. much eat what I wanted. Uh, but again, I was only making 800 bucks a month and that included my rent and my fees for the gym and my travel. So I was headed over to Costco and I, or the prize club. And I can't remember if that is still this, if those are the same thing, but I would get a big, you know, I'd get a big uh, package of uh, chicken breasts, cornbread, yogurt, and high protein. And that's basically what I lived on for the two years prior to the Olympics. Wow. Every, and oatmeal every single day. Wow. Wow. Um, what kind of music did you listen to while you were, in between your events at meets? Nothing. I never listened to music. I was solely focused on, there was, I was never distracted. My competition was my competition and anything that took me away from that meant that it diminished my ability to compete well, whether it be music. Uh, my mind had to be 100% into everything that I was doing without exception. So nothing would, nothing would be there was nothing that would that I would do that would interfere with that. Mm. Laser focused, awesome. What or who? Not in terms of physical stature, but who is the biggest athlete that you met uh, during the '92 Olympics? Mm. Charles Barkley. Mm. They they were that was the first year that they allowed the professionals to compete. Um, in the Olympics, uh, I want to say I met Michael Chan. Uh, uh, I thought he was a cool tennis player. Charles mm -hmm. Barkley, those guys, it was interesting because they stayed on a, on a luxury cruise yacht and were helicoptered back and forth to their different events. But <laughs> one day, he was actually in the Olympic Village, and I got, to, uh, I got to meet him. And he seemed like a really great guy. So that was, yeah, that was kind of a pleasure to to run into somebody of such high stature and big stature. Yeah. I bet. So he may have been both the biggest physically as yep, well. Right? Absolutely. So tough one here. Uh, who has better green chili, New Mexico or Colorado? 
New Mexico. There's no, <laughs> I mean, that's not even a question. I mean, there is New Mexico has the best food in the world. There is nothing and no place that can meet. I don't know what it is, but we really know how to make the right Mexican food. There's no place. I send, uh, when I go back to New Mexico, I actually will buy all kinds of chilies. I have sent them to Belgium. I have sent them to all places in Europe because my friends are like, oh, I love hot food. I'm like, you like hot food? Let me send you some of this. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a different level. And yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's comical that Colorado started this idea that they have better chili, you know. No, they're they're um, delusional. It's a good word. <laughs> well, no offense to anyone in Colorado who may be listening, but you know, well, we we we, we dominate love the chili scene. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> chili is all New Mexico for sure. So, final question: If you could give one piece of advice to parents who are raising athletes, what would it be? Enjoy the time that you have watching your kids uh, without putting pressure on them. Life has enough pressure of its own um, because this time just goes so quickly. The chances of becoming an elite athlete are very, very slim. 3% of athletes in high school make it to a division one school. 1% of those actually goes on to being a professional athlete. 1% of that 1% actually are at the top earning potential for being a professional athlete. And then the flip side of that is within five and a half years, the majority of, of professional athletes are bankrupt after successful peak of their career after they retire so even if you end up reaching that pinnacle remember every time you climb to the top of a mountain you have to go somewhere and you don't usually stay up there you usually have to climb down and so the important thing i think is is enjoy the time focus on giving your kids the skills to live life well and if that translates into something great for sport, go along for the ride, but don't push them into something that they hate just because you think they love it because it could be you who loves it. Mm. Wow. Phenomenal advice, Trent. I thank you so much for joining me and telling your incredible story and your amazing advice. I wish you just nothing but the best of luck for you and your family. Thank you, Gabe. I really appreciate you thinking about me. Uh, I, I wish you all the success for your indoor arena there in Albuquerque. I love footy and I think everyone should have the opportunity to get out there and play. And uh, the next time I'm in Albuquerque, I'll be sure to drop in. Yeah, please do. You're always welcome. So what were your biggest takeaways? Well, if you've listened to any of the other episodes, you've probably heard me say, and some of the athletes say something along the lines of it's important to let go of the outcome and enjoy the journey. And that's exactly what happened to Trent on his gold medal run. He was really just happy to be there at the Olympics and to be competing and to be one of the top gymnasts in the world at the time. And he said all of his other teammates were really focused on winning gold medal, but he wasn't. And he got his chance and performed. He was just enjoying the journey, especially 
under really intense emotional and psychological circumstances as he waited to do his routine at the high bar, although it probably wasn't enjoyable at that time. But still, it was just part of the journey. And that is so crucial to performance. It's so crucial to life in general. And if we want our athletes to do that, to do the same thing and to focus on the journey and not the outcome, we also have to enjoy their journey and not be worried about their outcome. And another thing that Trent said was he tries not to live through his children while they're playing sports. It is their journey. You're there to support them as a parent. And I've said this many, many times before in other episodes, to just love them unconditionally. That's what they need. They need that support. They will get pressure from everywhere else. They need you to just simply love them and support them and guide them on their journey, gently, of course, but remind them to just enjoy what they're doing, to do what they love. Now, in case you didn't know, I'm a transformative life coach. I work with professional athletes. I work with parents of athletes in workshops, in small groups, and privately on the phone. And if you ever want to look into working with me, you can go to my website, aclearmind.com. You can see everything that I do. And as I mentioned, if you join our Facebook group for Clarity for Parents of Athletes, you can receive a special code to get a discount, limited time discount for my player empowerment program that you'll see a link on there as well. So just look up the group and request to join And I'll get you in there and you can connect with a lot of different parents of athletes and check out sources and just connect with people in general. Again, I'm here for you. If you ever need anything from me, any kind of support and wish you much love to you and many blessings. 